Well, this evening we're going to read from the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bible or a pew Bible, please do turn it open with me. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11 this evening. Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 22. And then Pete is going to come in a little while and open it up for us. So Hebrews chapter 11. If you're reading from a pew Bible this evening, you'll find that on page 1200. And nine. That's page 1209 in our Pew Bibles. And it's Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to begin to read a first one. And then a little later, Pete will focus in particularly on verses 20 and 22. But let's read this together. This is God's word to us here this evening. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that when the universe was formed at God's command, so that it is seen was not made, so that what is seen is not made out of what is visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man, and God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By faith, he commended the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, became descent came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would, not have, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their faith. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he had leaned on top of his staff. 
Amen. And we thank God for his word to us. And we look forward to hearing Pete a little bit later on. Well, good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, please do turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. The verses that we're going to be focusing in on, although we read verses 1 to 22, we're just going to look at verses 20 to 22 in particular, and a little bit then at the corresponding chapters in the book of Genesis. The title I've given to tonight's talk is Dying Faith. These are difficult verses in the Bible in the sense that the issues that they deal with are particularly difficult and sensitive issues. The writer to the Hebrews here is talking about the importance of dying well, and that's what I want to spend the bulk of our time together thinking about this evening. In the context of Hebrews 11, these three men that are mentioned here in these verses, they get a relatively small amount of airtime. There's quite a lot said in the chapter about Abraham, quite a lot said in the chapter about Moses, and yet Isaac and Jacob and Joseph are mentioned but briefly. Despite the fact that actually in the book of Genesis, their collective stories make up almost 30 of the 50 chapters, there was plenty of material for the writer to the Hebrews to draw on from their lives. And yet he chooses to talk about the events that happen at the very end of their lives. It seems to me that it's clear that he wants to teach us something about having faith in the face of death through the example of these men. And I know that thinking about death can perhaps be somewhat morbid, but actually it's really important for us as Christians to think carefully about what the Bible says about dying. Being a Christian, of course, is about learning how to live for Jesus. That's what discipleship is really all about. But being a Christian also means that we have to know how to die well. Alistair Begg says that no pastor has done his job if he hasn't prepared his people for that final journey of death. And so thinking biblically and theologically about death is really important for the Christian. None of us find thinking about this easy if you're younger here this evening then I imagine you will think less about death than those of you who are a little bit older. But whatever age you are, we don't really like to think about death and dying, and there are legitimate reasons for that, aren't there? Death is our last enemy, and although for the Christian it is a vanquished enemy, it is nonetheless an enemy that causes pain and heartache. And so we tend to avoid thinking about death, and we live in a culture that goes to incredible lengths to anesthetize us to the inevitability of death. And yet, the reality of death is inescapable, isn't it? Every so often, we are confronted with the brevity of life and the reality of death. There's been a story that I've been following on Twitter over the last month or so now. It's a a tragic story, and the picture of the couple are gonna be on the screen. I'm not sure if any of you have picked this up. It's a picture of a couple called Toby and Millie Saville. You might remember um, November last year, we had a guy here, John B. Alcock, who came to preach after speaking at the Irish Youth Convention, planted a church in London, the Globe Church. Out of that church, there's been a church planted in London called Hope Church in an area of London called Vauxhall. And part of that church planting team was this couple, um, Toby and Millie Saville. They were on holidays in April in Greece. They were involved in a road accident, and both of them tragically were killed. 
Um, it's been a really, really challenging few months for that little fledgling church plant. Um, yesterday, they held a memorial service, a funeral service for this couple, and in the tweet that came out thanking people for coming to the service, over a thousand people came. They finished the tweet by saying, we will see them again. We will see them again. Something of the beauty of Christian hope in the face of real tragedy and the horror of death. You'll know that I've been off on paternity leave recently. Off on paternity leave. Um, Well, when I say off, Linda's been doing all of the work. I've been watching TV a little bit. And one of the things that I I got to do when I was off on paternity leave was I, I watched the Lord of the Rings films again. I was working and like changing nappies in between watching the Lord of the Rings movies. But there's a line in, in those movies where Gandalf famously says, death is just another path, one which we all must take. Death is the great leveler. And sooner or later, the death rate reaches 100%. Therefore, it's crucial that we look at what the Bible has to say about having faith in the face of death. So how does the writer to the Hebrews encourage us to do that? Well, let's look at these verses, see what they have to teach us. I just want to look at each verse or each person under a separate point. So we have Isaac first, then Jacob, and then Joseph. Excuse me, nothing very creative by way of our points this evening. Let's look at chapter 11 and verse 20, first of all. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. So the events referred to here actually happen in Genesis chapter 27, and then in the first few verses of Genesis chapter 28, it is a story full of lies and deception. We don't have time to recap it all now, but essentially what happened was that Jacob, the younger son, deceived his father Isaac by pretending to be his brother Esau, all with a little bit of help from his mother Rebekah. And Jacob then receives the favorable blessing of being the firstborn son. The whole chapter is a complete mess. It shows that family relations are just absolutely off the scale, broken and messed up. It's like something out of EastEnders or keeping up with the Kardashians. You might be wondering how then Isaac acted in faith or by faith when in fact he was being deceived. Whenever you read Genesis chapter 27, it's pretty clear that he didn't know that he was, didn't know what he was doing when he was blessing Jacob. I think we're meant to see here that the author isn't so much interested in the specific details of the story, but rather his emphasis is in the fact that Isaac had faith in God's promises, even though he couldn't see exactly how they would be fulfilled. You see, the blessing that Isaac gave to Jacob was really a reminder of the promises that God had made to Abraham. So you'll remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God made three promises to Abraham, namely the promise of a land, the promise of many descendants, and the promise of blessing. And Abraham dies with none of those promises having fully come to fruition, and Isaac is now dying in the same way. And the author of the Hebrews, or author to Hebrews, wants to commend Isaac for his faith in the promises of God, even though as he is dying, he has very little evidence that those promises are going to be fulfilled. At the time of his death, Isaac was still a nomad and a wanderer. He was no further to possessing the land that God had promised to Abraham. 
He did have descendants. He had two sons, Jacob and Esau, but as we just mentioned, they are bickering. You would hardly call this family a great nation at this point. They are certainly not a blessing to one another, never mind being a blessing to the nations. And so Isaac dies with the promises unfulfilled. And yet he dies with faith that these things will come to pass. Even though his circumstances seem to suggest that that fulfillment won't happen anytime soon. And so for all of his flaws as a father and for all of their flaws as a family, Isaac is nonetheless an example to us of resilient faith in God in the face of death. He is someone who is sure of what he hopes for and certain of what he does not see. So what does all of this mean for us? What can we learn from Isaac's faith here? I think the story is in the Bible so that we might learn to trust God even when we don't completely see his plans and don't completely understand his purposes. Even in the chaos of Genesis 27 and 28, God is sovereign. He is using the events that unfold there to bring about his divine purposes. And actually, as you read the story of the Bible, that's one of the things that you see over and over again, that God takes the sinful actions of humanity and he intertwines them with his sovereign purposes to bring about the fulfillment of his plans. We see it in the story of Isaac, but we see it most clearly in the New Testament at the cross, where God takes the sinful and unjust murder of his son, Jesus, He intertwines those terrible events with his sovereign purposes to bring about his plan of salvation. So what do we learn from the story of Isaac? That God is sovereign. That he is much bigger than we think he is. That he is infinitely wiser than we think he is. That he is much more merciful than we can imagine. Therefore, in faith, We should trust him both in life and in death. As believers, just like Isaac did, we can face our death with faith in God's promises, trusting that he will take us to be with him in heaven and also that he will take care of those who we leave behind. Isaac has complete confidence in the sovereignty of God and as New Testament believers, we should have that same confidence. So that's Isaac. Let's look at verse 21 then and think a little bit about what the writer to the Hebrews says about Jacob. Look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So as with Isaac, the reference here is to Jacob's death. And as with Isaac, the events referred to are described for us in the book of Genesis, this time in chapters 47 and 48. And really, these are two separate events in the end of Jacob's life. They're described for us in one verse here. And actually, the writer to the Hebrews describes them in reverse, chronological order. So Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph actually happens in Genesis 48 and him worshiping, leaning on the top of his staff actually happens in Genesis 47. But we're gonna think about them in the order that the writer to the Hebrews sets before us. So first of all, Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. At this point in his life, Jacob is also known by the name Israel. 
He has migrated to Egypt with his whole family. His favorite son, Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame, has basically been in Egypt, has been running the country in Egypt, sorry. He has two sons called Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob wanted to bless his grandsons upon his own death. Manasseh was the elder of the two and as such was due to receive the greater blessing, much in the same way that Esau ought to have received the greater blessing from his father, Isaac. However, whenever you read Genesis chapter 48 and you read to the actual blessing, Jacob does something unexpected. When blessing two heirs in this way, it was customary that you would place your right hand on the head of the heir who would receive the greater blessing and then your left hand on the younger son. But as Jacob comes to bless Ephraim and Manasseh, he does something strange. He crosses over his hands so that his right hand is on Ephraim's head and his left hand is on Manasseh's head. And Joseph is annoyed by this. You can read that in Genesis 48. He tries to correct his father, but Jacob replies by saying that he knows what he is doing. He makes it clear that the younger would be greater and as such that Ephraim would be before Manasseh. So again, the question is, what does all of that have to teach us? I think this whole incident is mentioned for us in Hebrews 11, so that we learn something of Jacob's priorities as he approaches the end of his life. He understands his responsibility to pass on spiritual blessing to his children and grandchildren. I think there's a real lesson for us here as we think about what it means to be those who pass on faith to those who are coming after us. I mean, think about the two boys. Think about Ephraim and Manasseh. Think about what life would have been like for them. They were sons of the second most powerful man in Egypt, the greatest superpower on earth at that time. Materially speaking, they were in an incredible position of privilege They would have had the best of everything, best clothes, best food, best education, best homes. They would have roamed in the finest of social circles. They would have been seen as the cultural elites of their day. On top of all of that, their dad, their dad's a national hero. Joseph had saved the country from ruin. He was respected and admired throughout the land. They're young, rich, famous, clever. And if they're anything like their dad, Joseph, they're handsome as well. They had it all going for them. They would have been set up to succeed in whatever career they chose. You could almost be forgiven for thinking that Jacob didn't have much, if anything, to pass on to these two guys. And yet, what Jacob has to pass on is of infinitely more value than all the luxuries of Egypt combined. This old, dying shepherd passes on the blessing of Abraham to these two young princes. And in doing so, he is reminding them of who they really are. He is reminding them of what really matters in life. He is reminding them of God and who he is so that these two young boys would grow to know him, love him, and serve him. And on the surface, it might not look like much, but Jacob is passing on his faith to his children and particularly his grandchildren and the confidence that God will be at work in their lives as he has been at work in his own. Jacob knows that there is nothing more important for these boys 
than that they learn to walk by faith with their hearts gripped by the promises of God, not distracted by the dazzling lights of the culture around them. As an old Puritan preacher, John Flavel, once said this. He says, it is a greater mercy to descend from praying parents than it is to descend from nobles. It is a greater mercy to descend from praying parents than it is to descend from nobles. For Ephraim and Manasseh, it was a greater mercy for them to descend from godly men like Jacob and Joseph than it was for them to have grown up with all of the benefits and luxuries of life in Egypt. So what about us here this evening? Well, if you're a parent or a grandparent, as you think about your children and grandchildren, what is it that you really want for them in this life? Would you be content if you raised well-behaved, well-educated, well-cultured kids who had lots going for them in life, lots of opportunities, but they were apathetic and indifferent to the gospel? What is it that you pray for your children and grandchildren? What is it that you teach them about what matters most in life? If you're a parent or a grandparent, do you talk to your children or grandchildren about God? Do you ever read the Bible with them? Pray with them? Encourage them to listen in church? Talk to them about the sermon or what they learned in Sunday school or children's church? Passing on our faith won't happen by accident. It requires intentional input from parents and grandparents in partnership with the local church. But we must teach our children and young people the ways of God. Spiritual formation will not happen by accident. We teach children everything, don't we? Teach them how to read. We teach them how to play sports. We teach them how to learn instruments. We teach them how to pass exams. So please, let's just don't hope for the best when it comes to faith. We must teach them the faith as well. And actually, in the context of what we're thinking about tonight, that means that we must teach them about what the Bible has to say about death and dying as well. That is part of their spiritual formation. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. He knew what it was to pass on faith. He is an example to us of someone who invested in the spiritual lives of those who were coming after him. But Jacob doesn't just bless his grandchildren here. We're also told that he worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. It's a beautiful picture here, I think. He's a man who wasn't without his flaws and weaknesses, and yet he is a man who has resolute faith in God at the very end of his life, worshiping God as his life draws to a close. He's 147 years old. He is physically weak and fading, and yet he is worshiping God as he leans on his staff. He is an example to us of someone who is dying well. His staff here is a symbol of his whole life's pilgrimage with God. And as he leans on it, I imagine he does so with a sense of history and indeed a sense of thankfulness for God's faithfulness to him throughout his life. You see, dying well isn't just about having faith in God's promises. 
It's about being able to trace and recognize the grace of God in your life over many, many years and then to worship in light of his faithfulness. So we began our service by singing Psalm 103 or a version of it. Jacob would have been able to sing the words of that song and on that day when my strength is fading, the end draws near and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending. 10,000 years and then forevermore. He was a man with many flaws, as we've mentioned, and yet he reaches the end of his life worshiping. His eyes are fixed on God. He is ready for the life to come. So we've seen Isaac and Jacob. Lastly then, let's look at Joseph in verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. And so these events are described for us in Genesis as well. Genesis 50, 24, and 25. Near his own death, Joseph promised his brothers that one day God would come to their aid and take them out of Egypt and eventually fulfill the promises that he had made to Abraham. Even after all of the riches and favor that Joseph has enjoyed in Egypt, he knows that ultimately it was not God's plan for his people to be there forever. He knew that God's people were but exiles in Egypt, that one day they would have to leave that country to reside in the land that God had promised to them. And so at his death, as in his life, Joseph has faith in God, and his faith has stood the test of time. Think about Joseph. He's been through an awful lot with God. From a boy with strange dreams, Sold by his brothers, living as a slave, being falsely imprisoned, standing before Pharaoh and interpreting dreams, saving the country from disaster during a famine. All along, God has been faithful to him and he has been faithful to God. And at the end of his life, he is looking to him to be faithful to his promises, to his people. At the time of Joseph's death, it is some 200 years since God made those first promises to Abraham. The people of Israel still have no land. And although they are certainly more numerous now, it is hard to see how they have been a blessing to the nations around them. Lots has happened. Three generations have come and gone. But the promises remain largely unfulfilled. But Joseph has faith. His horizons are way beyond Egypt and his own life. He wants to make sure that his own people remain unsettled enough in Egypt so that one day they might settle in the land that God had promised them. Like his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather before him, he was certain of what he could not see. And so he leaves instructions, perhaps a little bit strangely, he leaves instructions for his bones to be taken out of Egypt when the exodus finally happens. And we can read about Moses bringing Joseph's bones with him during the flight from Egypt in Exodus chapter 13, verse 19. And so even the very presence of Joseph's bones in a coffin with the people of Israel was a symbol to them that he was completely confident that one day God would take them from this land in Egypt and bring them to the promised land. So imagine, right, put yourself in the shoes of the little Hebrew kid 
who is running around and he's playing in Egypt and Joseph's coffin is in the corner and the little kid asks his dad, dad, why do we keep this mummy with us here all the time? And the dad says, that's not your mummy, it's your great grandfather. The dad says, because son, we're looking to the promises of God. We're to remember by remembering Joseph that God will take us out of this land. He will take us to the promised land that he will have especially for us as his people. And so even after his death, there is this visible, albeit slightly weird, but still a very visible reminder to the people that Joseph believed in the promises of God. He has real faith in God. What's the application for us? Well, very simply, I think we're meant to ask ourselves, do we share Joseph's faith? Isaac's faith, for that matter. Jacob's faith. This evening, are you sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see? Of course, as New Testament believers, we don't look to a coffin full of bones to remind us of God's provision for the past and his promise for the future. We look not to a coffin, but to an empty tomb. The hope of the Christian in life and in death is Jesus and his resurrection. You know how the old hymn goes. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, my life is worth the living because he lives. And so if you're a Christian here this evening, You can face death with confidence in God's promises because Jesus lives and he has defeated death once and for all. And so as we read these verses and we see how these men were trusting in the promises of God, we are in a position of greater privilege than they were because we know that these promises have indeed come to pass. As New Testament believers, we know that these promises have ultimately been fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the one through whom all nations shall be blessed. He is the one who is gathering and forming a people for himself, the church. And he is the one who will one day take his people to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we're in a better position than Isaac and Jacob and Joseph because we see the big picture of what God has done. What they could only see in part, we can see in full. And so this evening, we should have faith that the same God who has been faithful to his people down through the generations will continue to be faithful to us. We should put our faith in him today and every day for the rest of our days, even until our very last day. I wonder this evening, is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ You know, the reality is that every single one of us in this church tonight has faith in something or someone. Maybe you're here and deep down you're trusting in your own goodness. You hope that if you live a good enough life at the end of it all, then God will accept you because of what you've done. Let me tell you that the gospel says that we can never be good enough for God in and of ourselves. We must trust in Jesus, the one who has been good enough for us, the only one who can rescue us. Unless our faith is in Jesus Christ, then we face death 
completely unprepared. And nothing in the whole world is more important than being prepared for death. And actually, the whole message of the Bible from cover to cover is an invitation for us to put our faith in Jesus, to trust in him so that we can have confidence in the face of death and face it with real certainty. Let's pray together. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Lord, we know this evening that those words change everything. And as we've looked at your word tonight, we've been confronted with our own mortality. We've been reminded that we are finite, that death is indeed our last enemy. And if we're honest, we confess that we don't think about these things as often or as deeply as we ought to. And yet we thank you that your word forces us to wrestle with these things. We thank you for the glorious hope of the gospel this evening, that because he lives, all fear is gone. That because of Jesus, death has lost its sting. And so we ask this evening, Father, that you will give us grace to really believe these things deep down in our hearts. Help us to be a people who are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.